Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Trump's visit to Ohio. We're going to talk about some trouble brewing in and around Moldova and how that ties into the war in Ukraine. And then, while we're on the topic of Ukraine, I'll talk about some of the prospects for a negotiated settlement and the type of mindset we should have going into them. All of that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have Russia's Ministry of Defense reportedly, reportedly, and this is a very interesting statistic here, they reportedly supplied the Wagner Group, and this is the main force attacking Bakhmut right now, and Bakhmut being the biggest battle of the war to date, and these are the forces that have been capturing towns uh, around Bakhmut as well, like Solidar, and coming up on Vugladar as well, and as well as Krasnaya Gora, which I believe has fallen, but uh, uh, more importantly, uh, whether that city has fallen yet or not, the pincers are closing around Bakhmut. They're getting closer and closer. Uh, we're getting, we're hearing talk that a lot of the roads, the main roads going into Bakhmut are being basically cut off by these small-scale offensives, which, again, are largely being carried out by the Wagner Organization, which is the mercenary group fighting on the side of the Russians. But the Ministry of Defense of the Russian military has given us a very interesting number, because uh, apparently there was disagreements between Wagner and Russia over ammunition, and this resulted in the Ministry of Defense saying that they have, reportedly, supplied the Wagner Group with over 10,000 rounds of artillery shells within a 48-hour period. Now, that's, that's a lot. That's more than the Ukrainians use. Well, it's not more than they use. It's about the same that the Ukrainians use, except it's the same for just Wagner as the entire Ukrainian army uses in a day. So, the amount of ammunition going to Wagner alone over the course of two days is equal to what Ukraine uses up in one day. The entire Ukrainian army in one day goes to the same amount of ammunition as was reportedly supplied to the Wagner group over the course of two days. So now, you sort of apply that over the entirety of the line because the Russian military is more than just Wagner. And you're talking a massive discrepancy in artillery. And I think that this here probably confirms those reports that we've been talking about and speculating on, largely from our lovely source, Scott Ritter, that the Russians had an 8 to 1 advantage in artillery. This sort of corroborates that. If this small, this relatively small force fighting on the side of the Russians is getting 
as much ammo in two days as the entire Ukrainian military uses in a day, right? Then you can probably roughly apply that to the entire Russian line. Probably not exactly, because Bakhmut is the most intense battle of the war, so you can you can imagine that the numbers would fall off a bit f towards other fronts. But that's still a massive discrepancy, because you're talking about one small, not even official Russian military group getting and probably going through as many shells as the Ukrainians do every day, except they do it in two. So that, that's, at bare minimum, you have this one tiny group using up half the ammunition that the Ukrainian army does every day by itself, the entire Ukraine. That's huge, because the entire Ukrainian army is not in Donbass. Now, granted, this guy Zelensky, if he had his way, the entire Ukrainian army would be in Donbass. They would be in Bakhmut. And maybe then you'd be able to have a more comparable force projection and really a, a more, something closer to parity of forces, especially in terms of firepower. But my goodness, this tiny force has half the firepower of the entire Ukrainian army? What does that say for the rest of the Russian force in Ukraine? That, that means Ukraine is just massively outgunned. And this is a rather interesting revelation. And I wanted to share that with you. So, the, the longer this goes on, we just get a, a better and better picture of how bad it goes for the Ukrainians. Like, the, the developments we get as time goes on they just don't come out good for the Ukrainians. And that's, and then this is a trend that you've probably already caught on to just from the way that I covered the war, which is that I think Russia's going to win and that I think Russia's going to lose. But these, because I've held off on when, whenever I get things like, oh, there's an eight to one casualty ratio in Russia's favor. Oh, there's an eight to one artillery advantage in Russia's favor. Oh, oh, there's disputes in Ukraine's government and they're having a power struggle. I held off on making any definitive statements about those. And on the third one, the, the, the power struggles, I didn't even bother bringing that up. I didn't think it was real. I couldn't confirm it myself. So I just, I laid off. And on the other ones, I said, hey, this is potentially an important piece of information that is likely, given what we know about the Russian military, and... We'll see if it's true. And then it ends up being the case, if not worse, as time goes on. Even the power struggle thing. And I had to come clean on that one. It's like, well, I, I heard about it, but I, I didn't think it was real. I, I thought they were just being hysterical. I thought that was the Russian propaganda sleeping in. Finally, after all these months, we're finally getting some, some good old-fashioned Russian propaganda that I can dismiss and, you know, cut, cut through to the truth. Turns out, turns out... This guy Zelensky was losing his faculties, and that there was a power struggle in Ukraine. That power struggle is still going on, mind you. you, you Zelensky still hasn't gotten a, a grip on reality yet. Uh, if the constant reinforcing of Bakhmut is anything, go by. But even when I give Ukraine the little bits of benefit of the doubt that I give them, even that just ends up blowing up in my face, because it it's bad for them. And it only gets worse. So, yeah, I wanted to share this with you as we 
watch the very slow motion decline and eventual, in my view, eventual collapse of Ukraine. But in other news, we have Wang Yi, the former foreign minister of China. He's been promoted. Uh, he, he didn't necessarily resign and go away. He got promoted. Now he's, he's in charge of the foreign ministry. Uh, not just the foreign minister. He's in, in charge of foreign policy. Wang Yi has gone to Moscow. He's meeting with Sergei Lavrov, and he's likely to meet with Putin, if he hasn't already at the time of my recording. Likely to meet Putin. So this is major moves, and probably clearing the way for a, a visit by Xi Jinping to Moscow as well. And lately, China has uh, started getting people in the West, and by people, I mean the leaders, just a little scared just a little spooked because what they don't want is China doing for Russia what we've been doing for Ukraine and that's something that's been suddenly all of the sudden and I really do mean suddenly just uh, a lot of focus has been putting on on China doing arms shipments to Russia and granted we we are threatening sanctions to anybody who wants to supply the Russians it's okay when we when we supply weapons to one side. It's okay when we supply weapons and artillery to literal Nazis. But if you want to you want to aid the Russians, you want oh Iran wants to send you drones sanctioned. Oh, we're gonna bomb your your facility with the drones in it. Ooh. Oh, oh you wanna you wanna send them ammunition? No. You oh North Korea you wanna get in on this too? Oh sanctioned sanctioned sanctioned. And then now there's China, a country that can't sanction. <laughs> So now that they're they're afraid, they're afraid of them, and if that doesn't tell you the type of a bully that we are and that we've become, unfortunately, then I don't know what else. I mean, if there's one thing a bully fears most, it's someone who can bully him. And quite frankly, China could bully us if they wanted to. Like we, you have lots of people on the more conservative side of the uh, independent media space acting like China is just out to get us when they're not. But if they really want to do damage to America, they they could do so now uh, at the turn of a dime. A single embargo would screw us over. Like we import so much from them, it's insane. Now, granted, we're their largest trading partner as well, so that it'd be bad for their business. But that's the thing about being a producer of goods. You can always find other people who need your stuff. You can always find them, especially when you have growing markets in Africa, growing markets in Latin America, growing markets in Asia, where people are developing to the point where they can use these higher and higher end goods. So when you look at the situation China's in, where they can find more and more partners that are available to them for their goods, and we are dependent on China and China alone, that puts us in an objectively weaker position. The same goes for the entirety of Europe and the Anglosphere. But we've been bullied this entire time. And so now that a country that we can't bully is starting to step up, it's like, oh, whoa, hey, don't, don't, please don't. Please. <laughs> uh, you should see these people like Jens Stoltenberg. They're begging China not to, not to get involved. They they speed they hide behind the tough words where we're gonna we're gonna bring swift action we're gonna crippling and crushing sanctions and, and on all this but they're they're scared they're scared beyond their mind that they're gonna be shown up by China 
And the only reason that we're even in a situation like that is because they got us involved in this mess. And, uh, and you, I mean, uh, you have a lot of stuff surrounding China, uh, but a lot of stuff surrounding Ukraine as well. You have Georgia Maloney visiting Kiev, uh, which has sparked criticism of her because she was supposed to be the, the Italy first candidate. And now here she is going to Ukraine, promising to send money and weapons to Ukraine. Uh, she was supposed to be the change, but we'll see. Oh, you have the UN trying to pass a resolution for a proper investigation into the Nord Stream attacks, which uh, the countries involved have dragged their feet. Sweden and I believe uh, Denmark did investigations into this, and they just refused to release the findings. Uh, uh, we know who did it. We know who did it. it, it we, what was it? Like two weeks ago, we talked about the Seymour Hersh article, and he was just going in depth on how he thought that it happened at a tactical level. But way back in what was it, September, August, when the attacks actually happened, anybody with a brain knew that it was the United States because Russia could just turn off the gas. They could. They could always just turn it off. They don't need to blow it up. So, who else could it possibly be? NATO's too weak to do that. Which only leaves the United States. We know it was us. But they're dragging their feet with these investigations. And they've been dragging their feet for so long that now the UN, and this is largely countries outside of Europe, outside of America, the Anglosphere, outside of the West, they're the ones now pushing for a real investigation into this. And now they have America panicked. Because um, the people in America who orchestrated this and thought that they were the shit for doing so don't want to be outed as being that guy. It's it's like you engage in these things and then you don't even have the balls to... Eh, you don't even have the balls to acknowledge and live up to what you did. It's like, come on now. So that that's what, what's happening in the UN. Meanwhile, the EU is pushing for a 10th sanctions package against Russia, and, and, see, look, I already don't like sanctions, I, I'm already, like, and I believe I mentioned this when we were talking about Syria and Turkey with the earthquake, it's like, if you don't like a country, leave them alone, there's no need to just go out of your way and be a, be a, uh, excuse my language, but be a bitch about it, <laughs> if you don't like someone, just leave them alone, you don't have to go out of your way to ruin their life, it, it's literally cancel culture as a foreign policy. And I'll say it over and over and over again. That's what that's what sanctions are. And it's that's it's not this oh, it's a, a way to teach other countries not to do this and not to mess with America or oh we can we don't have to fight a direct conflict, we can just apply sanctions and then they'll get the message. Well, no. That you're just being an asshole. <laughs> you're literally waging a war on the civilian populace because that's what sanctions are meant to do to make life unlivable for the people living in the country that you're sanctioning because the government's going to be just fine they have all the resources they have all the taxes they have all the money they're going to be just fine they have the military it's the regular people that you're hurting with these sanctions sanctions are an economic weapon why use a tool of war a weapon of war against a country you are not at war with that is an act of war. I do not like sanctions in the slightest.
But let's pretend that I did like sanctions. I also like policies that work. And sanctions don't work against Russia. I mean, the fact that we were, we're even talking about a 10th sanctions package. Like, if it didn't work the first nine times, well, why would it work now? It didn't work in 2014. What made you think that it was going to work now? I mean, my goodness. Wasn't the ruble supposed to be rubble? Like, what's going on? Come on now. Pay attention. I say pay attention as if these people didn't already know. They know. They know this shit doesn't work. But they do it anyway. They just don't want to back off from it. And so when they inevitably have to, it just is going to look worse. And they'll only have themselves to blame. China recently has released a position paper specifying its stance on the conflict in Ukraine. Some people thought that this was going to be them coming out to negotiate a peace between Russia and Ukraine or calling for that. Or that they were proposing a peace deal that the, both, the two sides could abide by. Or, or that they were going to come out and openly state their support for Russia. And my thought was that they were just going to say the same thing that they have been. Which is that, oh well, their position is that they are neutral. They want a swift war, a swift end to the war, my mistake. And you should probably have negotiated settlement. They went a little farther than that, though, because they basically blamed American foreign policy, along with America's social and political culture, for the situation. Uh, Our foreign policy of bombing and attacking people as we see fit, and then expanding NATO up to Russia's border, constantly trying to provoke Russia into fighting its neighbors by dragging them into NATO, and arming them, overthrowing people's governments, you know, the whole shebang. So they blamed us for the situation in Ukraine, as they should. (laughs) And they also blamed America's social and political culture. Our culture where, essentially they called us degenerates. I won't get, I won't go digging too deep into that. They they call us degenerates. If you really want to know what the Chinese said, you can listen to a Putin speech. (laughs) Because it sounds like what Putin would say in his speeches. And I'm not, I'm not saying that like, oh, they're, they're repeating Russian propaganda. No, I mean... Literally, if you listen to a speech that Putin gives, the critique that China has of us is almost identical to what he would say, which is that we uh, essentially have lost our way. We don't have God. We reject God. I mean, we're run by Satanists. We have we've lost our morals. And to a, a disturbing degree, his critique is correct. I mean, what, what was it? Uh, the Academy Awards, the Oscars, oh, I, I don't keep up with it anymore. One of those, which just came by, sponsored by Pfizer, of course, it was Satanism on full display. Do I, need, do I even need to get into the Balenciaga thing? Like, this is literal Satanism. And we're out here talking about how the Russians and Putin is spewing propaganda. No, he's telling us about ourselves. And we don't have the courage to look in the mirror. It's disturbing how accurate those things are. How accurate those comparisons are. How accurate those critiques are. And that's what they're saying about us. And I think... Well, forget the world's opinion. Uh, like uh, Their opinion turned sharply against us a long time ago. Not to mention, no one likes Satanism except for the Satanists. But 
for our own sake, we ought to be looking into this and cleaning house, not worrying about Ukraine. But my goodness. Uh, And lastly, I'll I'll just come back to China, the talk of China sending arms to Russia, uh, because there's been a whole lot of talk about that. And, oh, China's going to start sending arms shipments to Russia. We're going to sanction, sanction. They're not going to do anything. And what I feel like this is, to me at least, is a cop-out. It's a cop-out from ad- admitting that Russia outproduced them. From admitting that Russia was just that powerful by themselves. They can't do it. See, now if China's the one who's giving Russia all this ammunition, all the ammunition, oh, they bailed the Russians out. They bailed out Putin from his folly in Ukraine. And that's how the West lost, because China's a peer power to the United States. And, you know, it just allows them to justify it all in their twisted minds. But it's a cop-out from admitting that the whole Russia running out of ammunition narrative was dead wrong. It is a cop-out from acknowledging Russia for what it is. A great power. Not some third-rate, washed-up, has-been superpower that has a poorly a poorly run military and terrible logistics. And is, all, and is a dictator, by the way, if you, if you didn't know. They're not, by the way. <laughs> On a real note, they're not, but th- this is how these people think. Russia is the gas station masquerading as a country. So, how does the gas station masquerading as a country beat the entirety of the West in a proxy war in Ukraine? They can't reconcile that in their head. And no one can, because it wouldn't make sense. But instead of course-correcting and saying, okay, well, perhaps Russia is a little stronger than we gave them credit for, instead of doing that, it's, no, no. China built them out. China's going to start sending arms and weapons to Russia. Oh, the Russians needed those Iranian drones. Oh, the Russians needed those n- the North Korean weapons. As if North Korea was going to bail Russia out in Ukraine. Okay. Okay. See. But hey, China. Now China. Oh, wow. Now it all makes sense. If China's the one doing it, then of course Russia would win. You have infinite Russian manpower with infinite Chinese military and industrial goods, it was inevitable that Ukraine would lose with that combination, and that's why we have to contain Russia and China. That's why China's the real enemy. That, that, that's all they're thinking in their minds. And that's how they're going to justify this. And it's gonna, that's going to be so frustrating to deal with, if that's the way this really does go. If that narrative really does catch on, I'm going <laughs> to lose it. I won't get to do my gloating when the war is over and Russia wins. But I don't think the Chinese are going to go all in on military support, at least not for a while anyway. It's not that the Russians need it. If, if they can give as much ammunition in 48 hours to one mercenary group as the entire Ukrainian army uses in 24 hours, well, they don't need China's ammunition, quite frankly. But that's what people are talking about, to avoid admitting they were wrong. And so... The fight for the truth continues, but that is the, I guess, not-so-rapid-fire news, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode, and we will start with the one true president of this country, Donald J. Trump, and his visit to Ohio, which was quite the wholesome thing, if I'll say. 
I'll just start off with that. But we'll get into this story here. Because last week, President Donald Trump took a visit to East Palestine, Ohio. And we talked about Ohio last week. And the environmental catastrophe that took place there. The man-made environmental catastrophe, I'll add. When, if you remember, that train derailed. Uh, I believe it was the... The the Norfolk Southern, that's what it was. That was the train that derailed. It had 50 cars. Ten of those cars had dangerous chemicals on them. And so when it derailed, and as of now, we have a little bit more information on how that derailing happened. Apparently, some of the bearings and the axle, some of the, the bearings overheated and the axle caught fire. And it was on fire for a while prior to the train keeling over there was some people talking about brakes and brake safety and the brakes but apparently the brakes were not the cause of the derailment but actually the burning axle was so train catches fire derails the chemicals start to leak and because those chemicals which featured vinyl chloride in a number of them in those 10 cars that had those chemicals the officials decided uh, that they needed to get rid of it because those chemicals were combustible. So you combine an axle being on fire with combustible chemicals, they were afraid that something would go down. But instead of, you know, putting out the fire, first and foremost, and then doing a proper deep cleaning of the area to get rid of the chemicals, they decided to burn them. Heck, instead of burying the chemicals for that matter and coming back later because you can put you can do you can kill two birds with one stone if you bury it there's no more oxygen for the fire and if there's no fire the chemicals can't explode on you so that they instead of throwing a lot of dirt onto it and there's plenty of dirt to be had instead of doing that instead of putting out the fire instead of doing a deep clean with a, a, a team of professional chemical cleaning people we have them in the country. They have official names. But, you know, instead of doing a, a nice little chemical reaction to put out these, uh, to dissolve or, you know, uh, either dissolve or neutralize these chemicals if they were that dangerous, instead of taking the infinite number of other options we could have taken, they decided to burn the chemicals and release all of those toxins into the air over East Palestine, Ohio. And as we're starting to hear now, the effects of this have reached at least 100 miles out from the town. So areas that were nowhere close to this train derailment are being affected by this environmental catastrophe as well. And... The response of the Biden administration was nothing. Pete Buttigieg, the transportation czar, decided he'd rather not go. Biden himself decided he'd rather be in Ukraine. It was just astonishing watching these people who are supposedly in charge of this do literally nothing. Like, uh... I put it on my, my Twitter account. <laughs> I've just, 
I've been getting a little more active on the Twitter. No, not too active. Um, I have a, a life. <laughs> but I said it on my Twitter. We, I, I listed all the, the, the various czars that we have. We have we have a whole lot of them. But I'm like, we have all these czars. And still no leadership. And there was one czar in particular I didn't even know existed. And he it was Stefan Lyons. Stefan Lyons, the ports and supply chain czar. He hasn't showed up either. No, one, no one's even brought up his name. No one's brought up his name. Nobody wanted to come along. John Kerry, the climate czar, he didn't want to come along. Nobody. Nobody. It's like, okay. So, if this is, if you're the czar of these things, this is literally what you're hired to deal with. And you don't want to deal with it. Well, what the fuck do we pay you for? Like, bye. <laughs> if you're not going to show up to do your job, we'd be better off having no one. At least then that's some money saved for the, out of the taxpayer's wallet. It's like, dang. And they just left him there. But now, Donald Trump has come. He has come to East Palestine, Ohio. And he was greeted by a very large crowd of people who were happy to see him specifically. They, they voted for the guy, by and large. And quite frankly, they were happy to see that someone showed up. All the people that were supposedly responsible for helping them deal with this decided not to go. Again, Biden would rather be in Ukraine. Buttigieg would rather be anywhere else. No one even talked about Stephens. I, I don't even think anyone remembers Stephens. But Trump didn't just show up to take a picture. He brought with him hundreds of cases of bottled water, along with hundreds of cases of prepackaged food for the residents of the town to eat and drink, while their, their other potential food and water sources were greatly contaminated. While he was there, Trump did a, a joint press meeting with the local officials, who, while they thank Trump a lot for showing up and for bringing the, the media and press attention to their town, which, quite frankly, was, I feel, being deliberately suppressed and ignored. And I don't know why. It's so strange. The response has just been so strange. Like, be, when we get past the initial criticisms of why didn't you go, it's like, why didn't you go? Why are you rather be in Ukraine than go? And then Buttigieg, why didn't you go? Well, once, once we get past the initial, why didn't you go? Then we're left with the, okay, well, why didn't you go? It goes from being a, a point of anger to a legitimate confusion. Now that we are uh, a few more weeks out from the, the catastrophe, why didn't they go? Why did the news decide to cover it up? Like, what's the point of all this? What's the point of... And it's, it's hard to explain, because it's like, you see these videos, right, of this reporter. Her name is Savannah, I think. And the only reason I know that is because people mentioned her name, otherwise I wouldn't have known. But this reporter, she, she goes up and asks Buttigieg the question, hey, why didn't... Do you, are you planning on going to... East Palestine, Ohio, do you have anything to say to them? Do you have 
are you even going to say sorry for being so late? It's like, and, and this guy Buttigieg is just acting. He's like, uh, he doesn't care. He, he's he's looking down at the ground. He he wouldn't make eye contact. He, he doesn't want to say anything. He, he's giving these these fake politician answers to the question, not really answering the question. It's like, oh, I, it's like, dude, this is literally your job. Why? What's so important? That you can't go. What? I just I just can't put my finger on it. It's again once you get past the initial outrage, it's like it's confusion. Once you get past the anger, it's confusion. It's like what's the purpose of all this? It like and it took Trump going for them to even speak about it. They didn't even want to speak about it. It was as if. It, it was as if they got caught doing something they had no business doing. Like, you know, when you're a, a kid, parents say, hey, no more candy. And then they, they, they go off. And then when there's nobody in the kitchen, you sneak in and you you, you, you sneak a couple pieces of candy, you know. You, you grab that extra pack of fruit snacks. Yeah, you know, you, you grab that gogurt, that yogurt, <laughs> that extra pudding. Mm-hmm. And then you get caught. And it's like, why are you doing that? And then you go through the interrogation, right? Why, why are you doing that? Didn't I tell you not to do that? So it made you think you, that was a good idea to do. And you just have to sit there with... And... <laughs> like, that's how these people have responded. And it's like, why? Why not just say, I'm gonna go? Why not just say, we're, we heard about what's happening, and we're looking into what we can do, you know? Even the basic, the basic politician answers where it's like, oh yeah, we really, we deeply care about you, even though we could all see and understand they didn't actually care. But, you know, even the fake we care would have done them a hell of a lot better than nothing. So why did they respond in this way? It's just confusing. And I'm still befuddled over it. I, I just can't understand why. And I, I, I don't think I ever will. It's just very, very strange. But back to the, the issue at hand. Uh, Trump did a joint press meeting with the local officials who did say that they'd welcome Biden to come if he wanted to come. But Biden has shown no interest in doing that. Uh, Trump then went to a local McDonald's where he bought... <laughs> He bought lunch for all the first responders in the town. And when he was asked what his message to Biden would be, uh, he said simply, get over here. And then he walked off like the savage he is. Absolute savagery. But again, all in all, this is a very wholesome trip. Which if we're all honest with ourselves as well, did magnificent wonders for Trump's 2024 campaign. And it, I mean, it, it was so wholesome and so effective that it was, it, it took a, it took a minute. It took a good minute for the, the propaganda press to, to get back into the swing of things, you know, back attacking Trump for literally anything, just like the good old days, you know, it took them a minute because they had to find something to be upset about. They they couldn't. They, even they had issues thinking about what to be mad about. But 
it didn't take too long for the Trump derangement syndrome to kick in and for the people in the news and the government to find something negative about the trip to criticize. And as of now, the point of concentration is Trump bringing to people who have no faith that their water is clean enough to drink. The criticism was that he brought them his Trump, his brand water, Trump water. They're like this bottles of water that literally have Trump on it it's from his golf courses and whatnot. And yeah, that's it. That, that that's that's the criticism. <clears throat> he he brought Trump water and it was just a photo op. Just like, okay. You know the. You know back in my day they they would have they would have found something just a little bit better than that, but. Uh, <laughs> I guess the, propaganda press ain't what it used to be these days. So, and yeah that that's that's all they've got <laughs> trump water it's a photo op and nothing and it's like well okay and so i it it, it it's so clean i'll just say that it's so clean in that trump comes off of this looking squeaky squeaky clean cuz there's it's so hard to spin that in a negative light. So hard to the point where the criticism isn't on him at all. No matter what the news tries to do, the criticism remains the sluggishness of both Biden and Buttigieg's response to the crisis. Uh, I, I would add, I would add to that the sluggishness of, what's his name? Uh... <laughs> Uh, I have his name. I, I just, uh, it's it's lost. I can't get to it. Uh, whatever. Ah, there it is. Stefan Leons. No, everyone forgot this guy was there. Ars, and again, his the reason he's important is because the ports and supply chain czar. Train derailment. That's supply chain. Why is he not here? John, uh, I was about to say John Podesta, no, he gets off, he's clean energy czar, but John Kerry, the climate czar, this is an, uh, an environmental catastrophe, where is he? Why is he not here? Buttigieg, the transportation czar, nowhere to be found. It's like, dude, why is it taking you so long to issue a statement? Issue a statement. Like, it was almost almost three weeks had gone by by the time Trump showed up. And so now the criticism is, uh, what took you so long? Because now after Trump has showed up, everybody wants, suddenly they find time in their schedules to go to East Palestine. And it's like, well, uh, way to keep it on the down low. <clears throat> and again, all this is good for Palestine. Trump has brought all its attention to them. Now people have to do their fucking job. But it's like, dang, it took that for you to do what you're supposed to be doing? And what took so long? And why? Why did it take so long? It's I, I, I just can't wrap my head around it. Why they would do this and why they would respond the way they have. And why they, uh, it just, it doesn't make sense. Like, even if you're like, they just don't care about Americans, it's like, okay, but... What about the pretend, dude? What about what about the fake outcry? You know, 
we know the politicians don't care about us, but what what about the fake response? Why did that take so long? We didn't even get the fake response. And it's just, uh, I, I've been thinking about it, and I just can't, I just don't get it. I just don't get it, guys. I really don't. You have Biden sending a tweet from Poland demanding aid for East Palestine. So you're you're not you're not gonna book a flight. You're not gonna get on Air Force One. Bring your stinking ass back home. No, you're just gonna stay over there. And I'm cussing up a whole storm this episode, but <laughs> but I mean it. He's just gonna he's just gonna you're just gonna stay in Poland while this happening. You're just gonna just gonna stay over there. You know you're, you're gonna give us a tweet. And that's it. You know okay. Bujaj, you're in the country. What about you? So you're gonna refuse to comment. He refuses to comment on whether or not he'd visit East Palestine. Like, he, he didn't even want to say, I will go, and just refuse to give a date. He didn't even say that. He didn't, He just didn't want to answer the question, are you going to go to East Palestine? He didn't want to answer the question. So that means no. So, after doing all of that, and playing all these games, and just trying to avoid even even being looked at, he is now made plans to go to East Palestine after Trump was gone, after all this pressure got put on him, after he just got put on blast for not doing his job. And now FEMA as well, I I completely forgot FEMA existed, I'll be honest with you, and now FEMA also mysteriously, after, after mysteriously forgetting what their entire purpose was, they have now also decided to bring aid to the town. After Trump came along. And again, this is all great for the residents of East Palestine, Ohio. But it's, uh, as far as we're concerned, too little too late. I mean, nearly three weeks went by before Trump came along. Which means that nearly three weeks went by before any of these people and, and any of these organizations did anything. It took Trump going to make them feel that it was even necessary to waste their time going and I, I just don't understand why it's it's so bizarre that there's just no there's not even like a, a straw that I can grasp you know not even like the weakest possible excuse that you can throw at this is there just, there's just nothing I just don't get it uh, I'm sure you might have some ideas, or maybe you're on the same boat as me, where it's just like, what, what, what's the problem? What's the holdup? I, I'm, I'm gonna leave it there, cause like, I, otherwise I'm gonna, I'm gonna be here all day talking about how I just don't get it, but I really don't. It three weeks before even saying you're gonna do anything. It took Trump going for them to do this, and now it was. Their actions, or rather their their distinct lack of actions, it's said a hell of a lot more than enough about where everyone's priorities were. So in that respect, this we've ended up learning something useful from this whole situation. At where exactly people's priorities are. Trump puts America first, and the others don't seem to care. They really don't seem to care. Biden would rather be in Poland 
or Ukraine. Either one will do. Buttigieg, who's in America, would rather be anywhere else in America but Ohio. He could be there in, in a matter of hours. He can get on a plane, but he, do, he doesn't want to go. Uh, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm having me time. I'm having me time, he said. Uh, uh, yeah? You can have me time when you're unemployed. Now, <laughs> it's like, wow. It's really like that, huh? And as another observation that I made was that in one day, in one day, in a single instance, all eyes were on Trump, and Trump alone. Before this, people were talking about DeSantis, and oh, maybe he's going to run for president. Oh, he's going to be so much better than Trump, and just sucking him off so much. <laughs> people were talking about DeSantis, and how he's going to be a better Trump. He's more electable than Trump. People were talking about Biden, and how Biden would rather be in Ukraine than in America on independent, not Independence Day, on President's Day. People were talking about Buttigieg and his strange absence on the matter. And, you know, all those other people running for the Republican primary. They've just come out the woodworks this year. And in a single moment, Trump has just rendered all of them irrelevant. And reminded us all why we voted for the guy. Well, those of us who forgot anyway. And I think... Again, very wholesome, very effective campaigning, but at the same time, it was a good thing. It was a good thing at, for him to do it, and all the other good things that are coming from this, the media attention, Buttigieg finally do, doing his job, FEMA finally doing their job, Biden finally acknowledging that there's even a problem, all of that's because of Trump. All that's because of Trump and his visit. None of this would be happening if it wasn't for Trump. So now these people are going to get the aid that they deserve because of what Trump did. So whether it was actually just a photo op or whether it was actually just him trying to campaign is irrelevant because he's done a genuine good here. And that's the kind of leader we need. So if it wasn't apparent already, I fully endorse Trump to... Return to his rightful place as the leader of this country. But now, now, we're going to talk about some of the trouble brewing in, and I'll say around Moldova. It's not just inside of Moldova, it's around Moldova. Because recently we've been seeing, uh, or well we've seen, the Russian Defense Ministry speak about a potential false flag operation it believes will be carried out by Ukrainian military, disguised as Russian troops. And they believe that this is going to be a, an attack uh, in the Transnistria region on either on Moldova. I was about to say either Moldova or Ukraine, but if it's an attack on Ukraine, it's not going to, do, it's not going to mean anything for Moldova. It's, they're going to The Ministry of Defense of Russia believes that the Ukrainians are going to do a false flag operation on Moldova disguised as Russian troops, to try to drag them into the war. So, you have that angle. That, that's the Russian concern right here. 
But that's not it. It's not it's not like there's just one thing or even two things going on here. There's a multitude of different approaches and all these approaches are coming at Moldova in ways that I'm sure the people living in Moldova probably don't appreciate. Because one, you have Russia, again, talking about a potential false flag that the Ukrainians are going to do to Moldova. But then you have Ukraine's Council of Security and Defense, which if you believe the Russian Ministry of Defense's claims, this might corroborate with that. Because here's what Ukraine's uh, Council of Security and Defense, the, the secretary of that council said. He said, quote, it's very important we divert part of the troops in that direction of Moldova. Because if a point of instability appears there, we have to react to it. End quote. So they're dispatching troops towards the Moldovan border. Now, towards the Moldovan border is technically towards Transnistria. Because Transnistria is right between Ukraine and Moldova. Like, it's a very it's a very thin strip of land. It's functionally kept functionally kept alive by Russia, which makes it functionally a, a part of Russia, but it is technically its own entity, although it's not recognized as an independent country. So the Ukrainians are moving troops towards the border here. So if we believe the Russian Ministry of Defense, then this troop movement would corroborate their claim, uh, or their at least their concern that that might happen. So you have Ukraine moving troops to the border here, even though nothing nothing's happened there, and but hey, I, I guess those soldiers get to be spared the tender mercy of Bakhmut, where we're getting stories about people being sent in there and. Being told they have four hours to live. That's the life expectancy for troops fighting in Bakhmut, apparently. I can believe it. <laughs> but uh, at the very least, they get to be spared from that, assuming nothing goes down here. Because you have, you have a lot going on here. And there have also been reports... And these are unconfirmed reports, but reports of Ukrainian forces massing along the border of Transnistria. So, you combine Russia, the Russian Defense Ministry being afraid of this false flag operation that they believe is going to happen. Ukraine saying openly they're going to move troops towards that region because they think that if there's a point of instability that they react to it, well, where's the instability going to come from? It's not going to come from Moldova. It's going to come from Transnistria because you're at war with Russia, and Transnistria is functionally a part of Russia. So these troops are going there, and you have these unconfirmed reports of Ukrainian forces massing along the border, which, again, if we are to believe the Russian Ministry of Defense, just might be corroborating their claims that there's going to be this false flag operation. Now, it hasn't happened yet, if it is to happen at all, but you can see how... This, the heat is being turned up here, all right on Moldova's border. So that's the trouble around Moldova. But then when we go into Moldova, you see that there's even more trouble. Because the leader of Moldova's opposition party said that uh, any attack by Ukraine against Transnistria will be considered an act of aggression against Moldova. 
that's what the opposition party leader is saying but the opposition is not in the power right now so he's opposed to anything that ukraine might do uh in transnistria he's saying that if ukraine attacks this part of which is functionally part of russia but moldova regards as a part of moldova so the ukrainians view transnistria as a part of russia as well and they think that they might want to attack or do something there to try to you know remove that liability from their rear that would be considered an attack against moldova by the moldovan opposition party but then you have the new prime minister of moldova who is a part of the party that's currently in power uh and this prime minister the new prime minister dorian Rasian, he is on the complete opposite end of that spectrum speaking about the need to demilitarize transnistria and he said this quote we must achieve one fundamental thing demilitarization everything else follows after that the economic and social integration of our citizens who are there is very important but in the first place is demilitarization it depends on many things but at some point it will be decided end quote he's talking about demilitarization well transnistria doesn't have its own military so where where's the demilitarization going to be ah it's those russian troops in transnistria that he's talking about that's the demilitarization so the leader of moldova is talking about demilitarizing transnistria which would mean removing russian troops from this piece of territory that moldova regards as part of moldova if he does that that's conflict with russia that's a conflict with russia and it would open the door for the ukrainians to attack whereas the opposition party is saying if ukraine attacks that's an act of aggression against moldova because transnistria is a part of moldova that's their belief so on you have the domestic politics of moldova are itching towards a conflict here they're leaning they're steering straight toward the conflict one against russia the other against ukraine uh, it's and then you have ukraine putting forces over here by transnistria because they think that they're attacking russia whereas both the opposition party of moldova as well as the prime minister of moldova believe an attack on transnistria is an attack against moldova and it's this is an entanglement i don't think well uh, i don't want to i don't want to say that i was about to say i don't think anything bad's going to happen i cannot be certain in this war uh the ukrainians are desperate the ukrainians are desperate and for anything they can get for ammunition for more allies for more aid more help they're desperate they have they have resorted to blatant acts of terrorism before they were shelling nuclear power stations in the war they bombed the kerch strait bridge they bombed apartment buildings in russia they they bombed that barracks they, like they sent in those two unmanned aerial vehicles and bombed an airport that had russian nuclear missiles there 
Like, the Ukrainians have done this multiple times. They do risky things, those Ukrainians. And then the Russian military is just straight up unpredictable. They'll do whatever the hell they want. And it's never what you can predict. And Moldova, I just don't have enough context on Moldova to know what the hell they're going to do. I have no clue what they're... Especially with their political divisions like this. If one side is saying Ukraine is the problem and the other side is saying Russia is the problem, well, that that's a war either way. It's This is a mess, a powder keg, if you will, and it can be so easily blown up. If the, if the Russian defense ministry is correct and there is going to be this false flag operation, well then, who does Moldova end up at war with? Will they see through the false flag operation and say it was the Ukrainians all along? Or will they go along with the go along with the false flag and just believe it was actually Russian troops doing it and side with the Ukrainians? Cause those have two wildly different outcomes. If they if they go against Ukraine and side with Russia, well they're looking at a lot of problems from NATO, quite frankly. Uh but at the very least they'd have the support of Russia, eventually, in the war, and perhaps after the war as well. Maybe, they, maybe they'd partition Ukraine. But if they side with Ukraine against Russia and they try to attack Transnistria, well, Moldova will have signed its own death warrant. And Russia will, annex, will reintegrate Moldova as well as all of Ukraine. Giving them even more territory. And that would be a, a very different outcome, I'll just say that much. It's it's a it's a powder keg. And it's ready to blow. And just the little just a little bit of provocation in the wrong place could send the whole thing spiraling down. It could send the whole thing up in flames, and we'll end up with another war on top of the war that we already have. And it can go either way. That That's what's so crazy about this, that on multiple levels, it can just go either way. Both on the domestic front and on the foreign front. And when I was looking at this, uh, Alexander of the Duran, he brought up how Transnistria used to be a major store of ammunition for the Soviet Union. He brought that up. And it seems to me that a lot of ammunition likely still resides within the country and its many military warehouses. Now, Alexander brought up that a lot of the ammunition, depending on how old it is, it might not be as effective anymore. But when you think about how Ukraine is in a ammunition shortage, a very bad one, mind you, to the point where the West is debating whether or not we should send these arms shipments that we've stolen in the Middle East, to go to Ukraine, well, Transnistria starts looking very tantalizing. It's disconnected from Russia geographically, so Russia's ability to defend it might be significantly reduced. It might be worth the effort to take, if you're Ukraine, if you can take it, that you can buy yourself months more time, if you can get that ammunition, even if a lot of it doesn't work, Though there's still going to be ammunition that does work. So you have incentives for Ukraine to go into Transnistria. 
But if they do that, that's conflict with Moldova. So now it becomes a little bit more likely and plausible that they would try to do a false flag operation to make it look like it was the Russians attacking uh, Moldova so that Moldova sides with Ukraine when Ukraine moves into Transnistria. And, again, that's that's just me speculating wildly. But you can see how easily this can all just blow up. And I painted one, one hell of a picture there. But this is a very crazy story, and it might get crazier. Or maybe it'll calm down. There's been talk of Moldova getting dragged into the war since the war has started. So, as of now, we don't have too much reason to believe that they'll actually end up as a as an active participant in the war, or even as a belligerent power in the war. It is more likely that things will de-escalate from this point onwards, but we cannot make that bet. Uh, or at least, well, you, you might want, you might make the bet if you would like to, but it surely ain't a safe bet to me. And plus, I think Moldova's current government, the one with their new prime minister, might be under intense pressure by NATO to seize that ammunition and give it to Ukraine as well. But you can't seize the ammunition without taking Transnistria, but that's the bribe. Transnistria is a part of Moldova, so just go take it. You know, you'll have NATO backing against Russia. Ukraine's going to win the war, and you'll get back your territory, Ukraine will take back its territory, everybody wins, you know? That's the bribe. But if they do that, well, Rush, the Russian steamroller will come for them, too. Moldova doesn't have anywhere near as much fight in it as the Ukrainians have had. They're not anywhere near as well-armed as Ukraine was. So when that steamroller makes its way past Odessa, it's a wrap for Moldova if they side with Ukraine. I don't know how this is going to go down. But if it does go down, it's going to go down. So that that's, that's the other major story I had. And so now I just want to dump my thoughts onto you. Because I've been thinking about... Thinking about... This this negotiated settlement that people are talking about. And we've spoken in about the increasing talk of uh, this negotiated settlement that people want. And a lot of people calling for a negotiated settlement. Those who, primarily those who believe Russia is going to win. Talking about the need for a settlement. Because the people who think that Ukraine is going to win, they generally think that just continue the war, keep giving Ukraine more money, keep giving Ukraine more weapons... And you'll beat Russia, and that'll be great for the United States, because Russia will lose strategically. And Putin, the only way Putin gets thrown out of office at this point is if Russia loses the war, which might be true. If only you could get Russia to lose the war. But we've, we've talked about that. But what I've been thinking about is, one, while it's nice to see so many people, at least on this side, not going all in and you know, saying Russia has to take this all the way to the end and there we have to wipe out Ukraine, even though most people on this side recognize that Ukraine's run by Nazis as well. So even here, you have people saying we need to negotiate a settlement because it's about the Ukrainian people. Right? And that's nice. We're still a minority of people <laughs> we're still a minority here, but 
it's nice to see that that's the sentiment on this side. So as more people come on to our side in their belief, uh, maybe switching from believing Ukraine was going to win to Russia's going to win, at least this will be the foundation from which that base of support gets built on, the negotiated settlement support, rather than let's just switch to supporting Russia. Which, quite frankly, would probably benefit us more ge geostrategically anyway, to have better relations with Russia. But, at the very least, a negotiated settlement is the point of policy that people on this side want. But I can't help but feel that it has yet to sink in too many of the advocates for a negotiated settlement. It has yet to sink in how such a settlement would actually go down. And I'm not talking about the specific things that would be negotiated and the exact processes by which a ceasefire would be implemented and then from there you implement all the other things you want to do because you can't do anything else until you have the ceasefire. But I'm talking about how the borders are going to look when the war is over. Specifically about that. Because there, there's a whole lot that can be said about the specifics of getting a, a ceasefire going in the, the first place. Because if you can't get that going, you can't. It, your negotiated settlement means nothing if you can't stop shooting at each other. And that was how the Minsk agreements fell apart. Because the Ukrainians just didn't want to stop shooting. But when we think about just how the borders of Europe are going to look after the war, if we, if we assume that they get the, the negotiated settlement, if we assume that Ukraine comes to the table hat in hand saying, hey, we're ready, sit down and talk. What are the bare minimum terms that they're going to have to agree to? Because it's not, it's uh, like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just say this. It's not going to be a white, a white piece. It's not going to be a white piece. So we should not look at this settlement as a white peace agreement where we all go back to the pre-war status quo. Ukraine gets all of its territory back. Russia pulls back. And Ukraine gets Crimea and the Donbass back. And everyone's uh, happy and, you know, satisfied. Or at least the Ukrainians are. The West and Ukraine gets everything they want and they ask for, and the Russians get nothing, you know? I feel that that's sort of the impression that people get when they think of a negotiated settlement. And again, that, that, should, that might just be me projecting my own concerns onto other people. Because again, this hasn't really been talked about, how exactly this is going to look afterwards. But... I don't think we should look at this as a white peace agreement. Because I don't think that that's how it's going to go down. I believe that we should instead look at these negotiations for a settlement from the standpoint of loss mitigation for the Ukrainian side. Because as it is now, if they sue for peace, and I mean if Ukraine sues for peace right now, Ukraine's going to get the unofficial Minsk IV agreement. Unofficial Minsk IV? Well, what the hell is Minsk IV? How, 
Where was Minsk 3? What about, what about the other ones? Well, let's go through them all. Because Minsk 1 was basically just a ceasefire where you stop attacking, you allow for humanitarian aid, you allow for a prisoner exchange, you pull back the heavy weapons, and, you know, you just end the war and everyone goes back to the status quo. That was Minsk 1. Minsk 2 was all of those things as well, ceasefire, prisoner exchange, humanitarian aid, stop shelling, pull back the heavy weapons. But along with that came the demand for direct talks, the removal of military and mercenary presences from both sides. Uh, uh, There was autonomy for the Donbass, and there was going to be direct talks between the two sides. Ukraine was going to have to sit down and do direct face-to-face talks with the leaders of the Donbass republics, and Ukraine was going to pass resolutions in its parliament recognizing a greater autonomy, specifically referencing the two Donbass republics, Luhansk and Donetsk. And they were going to still be a part of Ukraine. That was Minsk II. The unofficial Minsk III agreement was in March of last year, if you remember. Russia came into the war suing for peace, basically, because they got peace talks almost immediately after the war started. And in those talks, the settlement that was likely to be achieved there, if they had, you know, been left alone by United States, by UK, to reach an actual agreement for peace, the agreement likely would have been, one, reached back in March or April, and the war would be over by now, but two, it would be that Ukraine recognizes the independence of the Donbass republics, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, they would recognize Crimea as a part of Russia, and then that's it. So, when you compare that, to the unofficial Minsk IV, which is what Ukraine would get if they sued for peace now, that they would have to accept. This is this is non-negotiable gains, right? Where if they sue for peace now, they will have to accept not just the independence of Luhansk and Donetsk, but they will have to accept Crimea, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporozhye, and Kherson as being a part of Russia. They'll have to recognize those five oblasts as a part of Russia. Before anything else, they would have to accept those as the preconditions. Because Russia's not giving those back anymore. They've already had the referendums, and they've already acknowledged those places as a part of Russia. They are now integrated into the Russian Federation. Russia legally cannot give those back, unless Russia loses the war. But if we're talking about a a settlement, well, that means Russia didn't lose the war. Ukraine can't get those back. So, looking back on the unofficial Minsk III, where you just lose the Donbass and Crimea, well, Minsk III was generous. Minsk I and II were better, especially Minsk I, where you didn't even have to give autonomy to the Donbass, it was just all yours. Minsk II, the Donbass is still yours, but it's autonomous. Minsk III, okay, well, you have to recognize the Donbass is independent now, 
And we take Crimea. Crimea is a part of Russia. You have to recognize that. Minsk IV, like we just said, you have to recognize not just the independence of the Donbass, not just that Crimea is a part of Russia. You have to recognize the Donbass republics. You have to recognize Crimea, Zaporizhia, and Kherson all as a part of Russia. That's Minsk IV. The, you know, unofficial Minsk IV, of course. Then there's unofficial Minsk V, which is Russia takes everything east of the Dnieper River along with Odessa and Ukraine's Black Sea coast. This is the rump state conclusion that most people think, uh, most people who think Russia's going to win believe is going to happen. Ukraine will become a landlocked country in Eastern Europe or a rump state, if you will. And again, this is what most people who believe Russia's going to win the war think is going to happen. But then, because that's not the end of it, then there's unofficial Minsk 6. The outcome that I believe will happen. Which is that Russia takes all. All of Ukraine. And this can happen either by Ukraine refusing to concede defeat and trying to fight Russia to the bitter end, to the last man over every inch of land, and then Russia just marches all the way to the very end, and the whole thing ends up staying as a part of Russia. Or, if Ukraine misses the window of opportunity to come to the peace talks and try to sue for peace too late when the Russians have decided that they are no longer in the mood for talks, which is something that could happen as well. And at that point, Russia will just fight on to the bitter end, and the Ukrainians lose everything. Ukraine does not want to get to Minsk 6. They do not want to get to the unofficial Minsk 6 agreement. But you can see how this just gets expon the deal that the Ukrainians are able to get just gets exponentially worse over time. Because Minsk 1 was literally Ukraine walks off scot-free if they, all they had to do was stop fighting. Minsk 2, it's Ukraine is still intact. Donbass just has independence, uh, not independence, autonomy. Minsk 3 is independence and cry, you lose Crimea too. Minsk 4 is you lose all three of those and two more oblasts. Minsk 5 is you lose half your country along with Russia keeping... Everything east of the Dnieper and Odessa. And Ukraine's Black Sea coast. And then Minsk 6 is there is no Ukraine. And I think we're going to get to Minsk 6 before this is over. Now I am in the minority among the minority in my belief that that is how this ends. But I think that that's how this ends. I don't. And I don't see a lot of people speculating or even considering that as a possibility. And given how unpredictable Russia can be, and how a lot of us have just gotten the story wrong over the course of the time that this war has happened, no one predicted Russia would go in as soft as they did. No one predicted the war, the war itself would go on as long as it did. No one predicted as many Ukrainians would die as have died. And no one predicted that the Russians were as strong as they were, that they could not only shrug off the sanctions and then outproduce all of NATO and military production? No one knew that. We're finding out now. Russia's a very unpredictable, 
country and a very unpredictable military. So I won't leave out Minsk 6 as a possibility. I can't leave it out. I don't see the Ukrainians suing for peace anytime soon. And at a certain point, the Russians might just stop asking for them to. And that'll catch everybody by surprise. Because up till now, the Russians have been constantly open to talks. But the Ukrainians have not come to them in good faith. The Ukrainians want to have everything back, which is understandable, but just not realistic. You're not getting the Donbass back. You're not getting Kherson or Zaporozhye back. You're not getting Crimea back. And the longer the war goes on, the more that will be taken from them. Now, that people aren't thinking about that right now because the war is stalemated again. Well, it's... It's been like, it's been roughly the same shape as it has been since, well, this time last year. Well, I say this time, no. But since May, the war is, the front lines have been roughly the same since then. But in the event that Bakhmut falls, and I'm talking a catastrophic collapse, not Ukraine pulls its troops out, which they still have the time to do, they still have the time. They still have the, the ammunition, they still have the, uh, the logistical capability to do, and they just don't want to do it. If Ukraine gets encircled in Bakhmut, that's it. That's it. There will be a massive hole in Ukraine's lines. They'll have to stretch their forces even thinner across their entire line just to fill that gap. And then all their forces are just going to be chewed up by the Russian forces who will, on every front have local numerical superiority. And then it just makes the dissolution of Ukraine's ability to fight its fight back even easier. And God knows how well Ukraine's going to fare when the big one comes in. I'm talking about when Russia commits those hundreds of thousands of men that they have just lined up on the borders everywhere. Crimea. In, they have them in Crimea, and they have them across from uh, Kharkov, they have them up in Belarus. When Russia sends in that large offensive and starts to commit those troops, it's, we'll know that we're in, in the final days of the war. We will know that we have entered the third and final phase of the war. Phase two is over, phase three begins, and phase three is the end. And if the Ukrainians allow themselves to reach phase three and still don't sue for peace, I think at that point, the Russians might just not be in the mood for negotiations anymore. Because at that point, they will have committed these hundreds of thousands of men. There's there's no more room for negotiations. You had all the time in the world for negotiations. We're just going to finish the job now. I think that that is a distinct danger that the Ukrainians need to be aware of. They do not want to get to Minsk 6. Russia might offer them a, an off-ramp at Minsk 5 when they take everything east of the Dnieper as well as Odessa. So they have a land bridge to Transnistria. Not just Crimea. And if at that point the Ukrainians are still unwilling, unwilling to talk, or if the, Ukra the Russians just don't feel like talking once the, the large offensive begins, then it's over. There's not going to be a Ukraine when this is over. And that is a distinct danger that I feel is incredibly overlooked. And I'm not someone rooting for the Ukrainian side. I think Russia's going to win. I don't like Ukraine's government. 
I think we should just mind our own business. But as someone who cares significantly less about the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian people, as a lot of the people, uh, both on the pro-Ukrainian side as well as the negotiated settlement side, I feel like there is a great underestimation of the possibility that there's not going to be a Ukraine if they don't come to the table now. And that's my thoughts on Ukraine. And I also have been thinking about Taiwan and how that war will go and the implications of that. And uh, Ukraine isn't all that's been on my mind. Like, I've been thinking about this situation, uh, Taiwan, China, how we're going to... If people think that not being in Ukraine is a, is a good idea, but being in Taiwan is a good idea, it's like, okay. it's And this is an issue that is just always has me bothered, because <laughs> it's the next one up, and it's going to be worse than Ukraine, because we're talking about actual American troops now, instead of just all of our money and all of our equipment. And while most others have been comparing the current conflict in Ukraine, as well as the upcoming conflict in Taiwan, to World War II, I've been thinking that those aren't exactly accurate comparisons. I don't see the connection. Like, it's World War Three. it's World War Three. Oh, we can't let a, a peace win. Uh, World War Two. it's like, we can't appease Putin. We can't appease Xi Jinping. This is a different era. This is a different conflict. These are fundamentally different conflicts. But it's it's World War Three because that's sort of how they are able to conceptualize what's happening here. But I think some more apt comparisons for these wars, the war in Ukraine and the war in Ty uh, Taiwan, would be Texas and their war for independence. That That's Ukraine. Except it's not Ukraine, it's the Donbass. Their war for independence. Ukraine is Mexico, and Russia is America. And the Donbass republics together are Texas. And that's a very interesting comparison, and a very apt one. Which says a lot about who we're supporting, but that's a better comparison for the Ukraine war that I can that I see. And then there's Taiwan. People think that's going to be World War Three. I don't see it. What I see when I see Taiwan is America's Franco-Prussian War. Now a lot of people don't know much about the Franco-Prussian War. But it's the war that made Germany a unified country. It was the last war in a series of wars that Prussia fought to unify Germany. And they beat France. France was the dominant power on Europe since the Thirty Years' War. 1648, Thirty Years' War ends. France is the dominant power now. Spain was the dominant power before them. Really the Habsburgs, but Spain... But after Thirty Years' War, it's France. So you're talking 200 and something years of dominance here, which was brought to a very abrupt end in one war against an upstart power, Prussia. And Prussia's German allies. Prussia instigated... Now, the difference here is that Prussia was the one who instigated the war and got France to declare the war on them. And so they were able to rally the southern German states, which hadn't joined their confederation. They had a confederation with the other northern 
Germany's... Uh, if you look at a map of Germany at the time, you'll understand what I mean here. But that's the key difference, is that Prussia instigated the war, and France fell for the instigation. They, they fell for the provocation and went to war. In the, and if you haven't guessed, I'm comparing China to Prussia and America to France, except in our Franco-Prussian War, it's us who are instigating and provoking. And China's going to be the one who ends up having no choice but to go along with the provocation. Except China is Prussia and we are France. China will win this war. And when they win this war, they will, one, unify China, just like Germany, just like Prussia unified Germany, and they will, by force of arms, bring a very abrupt and sudden end to American hegemony. Uh, certainly over their region, over, uh, for Germany was the end of French hegemony and influence in Germany. And, hell, even Europe. Germany rose to be the dominant power in Europe altogether. When China wins in the Taiwan War, they will, one, unify China, they will overthrow U.S. influence in Asia, and likely the world. Because at that point, because we're, we're the, the world superpower, right? So if we lose to China by itself, us and all our allies, well, that means China is the new dominant global power. And just like France wasn't able to rally any of, any of its allies in its war against Prussia and the German states, I don't think a lot of our allies are going to come along for the ride either. And it'll end up being a, oh, uh, I was about to say 1v1. I mean, it may as well be a 1v1. The, the Taiwanese can only do so much. But you're going to have America and Taiwan against China... And China's going to win. We're going to suffer catastrophic defeat. Our prestige is going to be destroyed. Our beloved credibility that all these uh, these experts and academics love to speak about so much, especially when Afghanistan fell back into the hands of the Taliban, and they were talking about, what does this mean? What does this say to our other allies? How do we protect U.S. credibility around the world? Well, when we lose on Taiwan, there's not going to be any more credibility. Sure, we'll still be a great power, but we won't be the power. We won't be the superpower anymore. China will be the new dominant power, not just in Asia, you know, just like Germany overthrew French influence in Germany. China will become the dominant power globally, surpassing and replacing the United States. And that's how I think this is going to go. Now, thankfully, we're not going to get occupied by a Chinese army. <laughs> Washington, D.C. isn't going to be starved half to death by an army of a million Chinese men, like Paris was by the Prussians. And our president isn't going to get captured in the war like the French president was. Well, at that point, the French emperor, Napoleon. The other Napoleon, not, not, not the good Napoleon, the other Napoleon. And luckily for us, it'll be Taiwan 
who gets taken as a part of China, which will be the unification, rather than a piece of America being taken as compensation. But the geostrategic ramifications of the war, in spite of its differences, would much would be much better compared, and uh, much more comparable, I should say, to the Franco-Prussian War than World War II. And hopefully I've made that case to you. And that's really how I think this is going to go for us. I don't want us to be over there, mind you. I would prefer if we went home on our own terms, instead of defeat with our tail between our legs. But that's how I think that, that's how I think this goes. We're on track for a collision and we can't handle Russia. All of NATO can't handle Russia, so what makes us think we're going to beat China? But people want the fight. People who think that not being in Ukraine is a good idea, which they're right. But then they say, well, best because we need to be in Taiwan because China is the real enemy. No, it's the same conflict, just worse. And as, as avoidable as it is, as incredibly avoidable as it is, I think that this is the way that it goes. We go provoke China, whether that's sending some some military aid and we just sent an additional we just beefed up our presence on Taiwan by 200 troops. So and these are these are just training. They're just training the Taiwanese in there. It's like, OK, well, we were just training the Vietnamese. And then look what happened after that. Just training in the U.S. military when we're trained, when we're dealing with foreign countries, it, it never stays just training. And in the event that there is a war between China and Taiwan, now you have 200 American personnel, military personnel, in the line of fire, who are going to have one hell of a time getting out of the country in the event of an armed conflict. And we're supposedly preparing for that armed conflict. With what production, I'll say. Because the Chinese, will, if the Russians cannot produce us in every aspect of military production... Than the Chinese can. Again, everyone's afraid that the Chinese are going to flood Russia with weapons and that they're going to win the war for the Russians just through the force of their production. Well, let's apply that same logic to Taiwan. If China can win the Ukraine war for the Russians without even going over there themselves, what makes you think you're going to beat China in a war over their own neighborhood? That's. But see, they just. The, the consistency of logic is just not there. So as avoidable as this is, we're going to have a Franco-Prussian war of our own. That's, what, that's what's going to happen. And I can only hope and pray that when we lose, we will not spend the next half century fantasizing about revenge. on get, We're going to get a revenge in China. Because that's how the French spent the next 50 years. Between the Franco-Prussian War and World War One, that that's that's what the French were busy doing. So hopefully we don't end up like them, and we don't have to. We really don't. But while I can hope for the best, it is always best as well to hope—not to hope, but to prepare for the worst. But 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 that is all I've got for you today my lovely listeners.
I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I hope it doesn't happen. I don't need I don't need our own Franco-Prussian war and you know out of semi concern for the Ukrainians I hope that their leadership has it together enough not to let themselves get to Minsk 6 or to Minsk 5 for that matter they should take the deal but I the world is changing and it's changing fast and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.